there's this basic idea that a good part of our uh, common day-to-day -day conversations is embedded or framed by the way we used to answer certain political questions and that those political questions or our political worldview is framed by uh, our implicit or explicit philosophy. So that means that the way we used to answer certain political questions is dependent on the philosophy we chose or elements of, of a specific uh, philosophy. So when I look at the world and the problems we face today, I do not only see political questions like fake news uh, versus truth uh, or is gender socially constructed or d does it have biological roots or how to deal with climate or migrants or borders. But I also see that we try to act out some philosophical issues and questions. And I think the most important conversations we have as a Western culture today is basically the question of postmodernism. That is, what kind of values and views do we have and we want to employ in our society? Most of our political dis discussions today have their roots in postmodernism. And in my opinion, in its good aspects and in its bad aspects. But interestingly, there's no broad consensus about what postmodernity actually is. Um, you can even argue there are so much aspects of it that the impossibility to, to define it is a major characteristic of postmodernity. So to, to help sort out this question, I, I talked to Professor Hicks, who wrote a fascinating book on postmodernism. It's called um, Explaining Postmodernism, and I will provide the link below. So I, I hope you will enjoy this conversation. Um, my name is Thomas Mark, and I hope um, you're all good and well. So... Professor X, um, welcome to this podcast. I thank you very much that you're that you're here with me. Great. So sure. my pleasure. Yes, um, you're a professor for philosophy at the Rockford University, and you wrote, yes. I guess, two books: Nietzsche and the Nazis is one, and Explaining Postmodernism is the other one. Yes. And, and I wanted to talk to you, with you a little bit about postmodernism because. Um, I, I think a lot of what's, what is happening today in the world is, is somehow related to postmodernism. I'm thinking about yes. gender questions. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about those student riots and, uh, and those evergreen colleges. And even in Germany, in the Magdeburg University, where, where a biology professor was supposed to talk about the biological roots of, of, of gender, and, 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 and there was basically a riot. So... So and then, yeah. then yes, unfortunately, yes, there, uh, the, the practical implications of postmodernism are widespread now. Yes. So and and fake news somehow related to postmodernism, I think, because like, sure. Yeah. Um, but on the other side, it's, it seems to me there's no broad consensus about what is postmodernism. Um, I mean, you, you can ask right. academics and they have like completely different approaches to that. If you talk to normal and quote normal people that don't have any conception of it, what it what it actually is. So right. um, how and this is my question, how can we approach this topic of postmodernism and how can we boil it down? Are there are there some tenets or, or principles of postmodernism to understand what that is? Sure. Yes. Well, you're right that there is a, a widespread debate even about what postmodernism is. Partly uh, that's because uh, uh, postmodernism is a very broad philosophical movement, even though it is in large part anti-philosophical in, uh, in some of its themes. But any philosophical uh, system takes very broad positions, and within those broad positions you would expect there will be a number of competing sub-debates and people in different disciplines, law, history, gender studies, and so forth, will typically focus on 
some of the sub-debates. And so it's often difficult to see connections between one sub-debate and other sub-debates. Yes. Uh, I think another challenge here is that postmodernism uh, is opposed to a lot of the precision and a kind of analytic clarity that's characteristic of other philosophical movements. And this shows up in its in its rhetoric and in its content as uh, uh, sometimes intentionally being obscure or using rhetoric in ways other than to try to communicate precisely and uh, and clearly. But if we look at the leading intellectuals, right, those whom most people will say these are the uh, the heavyweight intellectuals of the postmodern movement, uh, we do see that they were uh, very philosophical and very clear in what they saw their movement as representing. So I'm thinking, of course, of people like uh, Michel Foucault, uh, Jacques Derrida, uh, I would uh, add uh, someone like Richard Rorty, uh, perhaps not yes. quite as extreme in uh, postmodernism, but the American, uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, and then any number of other uh, uh, you know, world-famous intellectuals who are often put under the, right, the postmodern right, label. Now, the name itself right, uh, mostly came from, uh, uh, at least in, in intellectual circles, from Lyotard, who talked about the postmodern condition. Yes. You know, this suspicion about meta narratives, right? The standard phrase that he uses there. But if you think about just the phrase, right? It is post modern, right? You break it down. Uh, that then is to say that we are to think of modernity, right? Or the modern world, or the modern philosophy, or the modern intellectual framework. And that post modernism is positioning itself beyond that, or against that, or in some right relation to that. So I think the best way to do uh, that is to uh, you know, go to the sources here. And what you find when you read Foucault and Lyotard, I would throw Jean Grey, the, uh, the, the English-British philosopher, uh, in there. All of them are explicitly saying modernism stood for these things. Mm. Right? And they will yes. mention certain metaphysical principles, certain assumptions about human nature, certain assumptions about knowledge and epistemology, about values and science and so on. And they will be very clear, right, about what that modern framework stands for, and then be also be very clear that they are rejecting, right, that modern framework. So virtually all of them, you know, there are direct quotations from Richard Rorty, Michel Foucault, John Gray, and so on, saying essentially modernism was realized in the Enlightenment philosophy. Yes. Now, that's already a very broad characterization with many sub-debates, but essentially what the Enlightenment stood for, we believe that was a failed paradigm or a failed philosophical framework that has uh, now two centuries later uh, uh, reached certain cultural manifestations, which we think are terrible, uh, destructive, uh, or ultimately empty and postmodernism has to recognize the failure of the Enlightenment and then move beyond it to something else. Mm, yes. Please go on. So as a, yes, so as a, as a first glance, I would say, yeah, it's, it's hard work because then we have to say, well, what does modernism stand for? What did the Enlightenment stand for? And then what would the alternatives right, to, uh, to that okay. be? So that would be the, the next thing to drill into yes. for more details. Yes. I mean, there, there are, um Terms like social constructivism, relativism, um, performative contradictions—you know—all those things which are which are attached to to uh, this postmodern worldview. I guess what is it like a sure. like a reaction to to modernity, the pathologies yeah. um, partly sure. of, of modernity. Yeah, take the uh, the first phrase in your your list there, the uh, the social construction. And that is a kind of metaphysical claim. So you take the traditional philosophical question, what, what is real, right? Or what is the nature, right, of reality? Uh, and the, uh, the Enlightenment philosophers, by and large, were uh, naturalistic, right? That the, the world is the, the natural world or the, the world of uh, physical matter and energy. Uh, they, by and large, saw it as a self-contained world of cause and effect, 
Uh, and as a result, that's uh, the world we live in. That's the one that we can study with our tools of, uh, of reason uh, and experience and then in more sophisticated form in, uh, in science with scientific method. And that modern answer to the question of what is real right, was already a revolution against kind of an earlier pre-modern world that had argued the, uh, the natural world is not self-contained or that its cause and effect is not uh, uh, coextensive with it, but comes from a, a higher world, a yes. supernatural world of uh, spirits or, or, or a supreme spirit, a god. And so uh, that metaphysics, right, the pre-modern metaphysics, we might call it a, a essentially religious metaphysics, says that reality is essentially spiritual, uh, that there is a God that has a purpose or purposes, and uh, he or she or it right, created the natural world and perhaps imposed cause and effect on it, or maybe uh, imposes miracles on it when uh, he chooses not to follow cause and effect. But we can't understand the natural world except by reference to a supernatural world. So then we have the traditional philosophical debate about the nature of reality. You know, how is reality constructed? Right? Yes. And the traditional position says, well, it is constructed by God according to God's purposes. And maybe we can know them and maybe we can't know them. Uh, and then the modern naturalistic approach that says reality is the natural world and it goes according to cause and effect. Now, the uh, postmodern position, Rich, uh, comes out of a lot of skepticism. Obviously, there have been skeptical thinkers as long as there has been philosophy. But what happened in late modern philosophy, as we got into the 20th century especially, was uh, philosophy in both the uh, Anglo-American approaches and the continental European approaches, which were then dominating the world of philosophy, became increasingly skeptical right, about our uh, capacity to come to know anything about right, reality, right, whether it's the natural world or, or the supernatural world. So faith, right, mysticism had been widely discredited. Right? Yes. But then if we turn to the more modern rational epistemologies, right, uh, you know, if we're going to base our knowledge on, on the senses and perception right, of the world, well, the philosophers of the early 20th century are uh, uh, concerned with apparent illusions and hallucinations and the apparent relativity of the senses. So how can we say that our sense perception gives us any sort of objective understanding of the way the world is, even at a very basic level? Our data right, seems uh, initially corrupted. Uh, abstractions right, and concepts, uh, how can we... Uh, give them any legitimacy uh, if we want to say that the reality is particular and concrete, but we think of the world in terms of abstractions and universal right principles. There doesn't seem to be a, a connection there. Then uh, language, in many cases, seems to be very uh, fluid and flexible. Uh, you know, there's perhaps no one correct grammar, right? Or yes. uh, the semantics of concepts and phrases are very slippery and evolving. So maybe language, right? We don't understand it. And then the tools of, uh, of uh, scientific method more precisely, logic, mathematics, uh, philosophy of mathematics and logic, right? At that point had also become very skeptical. So what the early postmoderns right are are doing is standing at the end of a, a kind of a long and deep skeptical evolution right in philosophy. You know, over the centuries, philosophy goes through phases right where it's it's more optimistic or more pessimistic about knowledge. But what had happened by the middle part of the 20th century was the collapse of logical positivism. The rise of thinkers like Thomas Kuhn, yep. Paul Feyerabend, uh, speaking in philosophy of science. Uh, Heidegger was uh, ascendant right on the on the continent. Uh, the, early, the existentialist thinkers also were pessimistic about about knowledge and the mm. death of Thomas God. Kuhn played a role, I guess, no? Uh, yeah, in the early '60s, yes, yeah, yeah definitely. 
Um, and so what they're saying is, look, philosophers have been debating the nature of reality for thousands of years. And, you know, we're going to say we, we've made no progress, right, on this. In fact, what we now have is very sophisticated arguments about perception, logic, language, concepts, theoretic theory formation, and so forth, uh, all of which are, are negative. So what we're going to do is to say, look, this whole point of trying to talk about knowledge of reality, whether you take it to be God or the natural world, let's forget that project, right? It's, it's not possible. The idea that we can reach any sort of truth, right, whether it's you know, the modest truths of scientists or the capital T truths of religious thinkers and, and, and the Platonists, we're not going to get there. Right? So whatever is going on in our heads, right, if we can use that language, or in our beliefs, right, or in our knowledge, right, whatever it is, can't be about knowledge, it can't be about truth. We can't make sense of this idea of understanding what reality is. So the new position then came to be to say, that, look, metaphysics is a pointless discipline. So let's just forget it, right? And whatever we're doing when we're doing philosophizing, if we want to call it that, we need to rethink right, what that is. Right? And that's the postmodern move, to give up on the idea that philosophy is about coming to know an independent, objective reality. Instead, reality is something that I or we make up. Uh, and, uh, As a social construction, it, yes. Hmm? That's right. Okay. And if, and if you go in the more social direction instead of the more individualistic direction, then you will say reality is just something that we make up socially. Uh, and each of us is born into a social tradition. And that tradition constructs our thinking. It constructs perhaps our language the language through which we do our thinking. So whatever we call reality is then a product of social forces. And that's also a postmodern move fundamentally. But um, you hesitated a little bit uh, when I said worldview. So you, you think more in terms of a philosophy than, than a worldview in regard of postmodernism. <clears throat> well, worldview is uh, perhaps a synonym right, for, for philosophy. If you take the world to be equivalent to the sum total right, of, uh, of reality, but often uh, when people stop talking about uh, philosophical right, uh, views and go to worldview, it's a, it's a retreat. Right? Okay. But it still has a, an objective connotation right? if you say, well, the world is out there. So it's uh, an ambiguous middle concept, I think. So, so now we are with Liu Ta and the... the deconstruction of those grand narratives that science and democracy are like valuable projects you know, that, yes. that, that we can yeah. access some forms of reality that was a, a recognized as a, as a narrative, like a big narrative and all, as far as I understand, all we can do is work with those micro narratives now, we cannot right. relate anymore to some form of objective reality or but yeah. it's it's always a social dialogue and there begins like a completely new dynamic of things yes absolutely so the language of narratives is also indicative of a of a major transition right uh, if you are a realist right whether a religious realist or a scientific realist you will talk about theories okay? you have theories about the way the world is the uh, the language of narratives Uh, more prominently comes out of the world of fiction, right, where you're talking about stories. Uh, and stories, of course, we, we make up and we don't worry primarily about whether they are true or, or, or internally consistent, right, necessarily. So uh, we'll stop saying, well, I'm not going to talk about whether this theory or that theory is, is, is the correct one. Instead, let me just tell you some stories about reality that people believe And these stories are different and in conflict with each other. And uh, the way, uh, rather, the use of a concept like narrative is to say we can speak right of these stories without having to involve ourselves in the question of which one is actually true or not. Um, but then, of course, uh, you can have stories, but you want to have a story that is comprehensive, right? Initially, if you are ambitious and optimistic. Uh, but then if you start to say, look, uh, 
to think very universally, very abstractly about the world as a whole, to the extent that you become more skeptical, that sounds less and less likely. Mm. So you start to say, let's just talk about this smaller narrative and get away from any idea of big, grand narratives. Yes. Let me. So you mentioned may, uh, in may the first just part ask of one thing? The, uh, the normative principles, because uh, there is a whole normative side to this. Yeah, part of the modern Enlightenment project was a belief in universal rights, right, that all human beings by their nature share. And then over the course of the advance of the Enlightenment, you see the uh, those rights extended to women, extended to people of other religions, of other races, and so on. But a retreat from any sort of universal understanding of the human condition, that there is a human nature, or that there are objective universal principles that we might call rights, or even uh, universal moral principles of, of respect, tolerance, and so forth. All of that also is abandoned by postmodernism. So as you suggest, yes, we are in a very different dynamic yes. now. Um, let, me, let me ask you one question. Um, it's, it's a quote. Um, You wrote, you wrote in your book, Michael Foucault has identified uh, the major targets. It's in the beginning of your book. All my yeah. analysis are against the idea of universal necessities in human existence. Such necessities must be swept aside as baggage from the past. So now, um, when I'm thinking about this, and there, there are postmodernists, I, I think of Professor Thaddeus Russell, who thinks this... This is the greatest achievement of human history to be able to get rid of those necessities, right? So that we that we understand that everything everything basically is socially constructed. And when you follow this argument, you you can get behind it. You know, there's a there's a logic to it. You can understand what he means, but then you can completely take the opposite side, like, like Professor Jordan Peterson, who sees in that um, phrasing more like a problem, or I, I wouldn't say pathology, but it's like more of a problem. So you have one um, idea from Foucault, and you have like two thinkers who I, I appreciate a lot, uh, but have completely different stances to this basic idea of, sure. so how, how do you reconcile that? How do you? Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the Foucault uh, quotation, right, that you, that you give, there is in the Foucault framework one exception to that, and that is the, uh, the concept of power. And for much of Foucault's career, he was a Nietzschean, right, and described himself as a, as a Nietzschean. So if you uh, abandon the idea of truth as a universal quest or as a universal realizability, or you abandon, as Nietzsche did, the idea of a universal morality and relativize it to fundamentally different biological and psychological types, then uh, uh, you don't have to abandon all universalities, or as Nietzsche did. You could say there is one underlying constant, and that is power in various manifestations. So uh, one way then of reading postmodernism is that it does still have a meta-narrative, right, of sorts, that uh, social construction, right, is, is very fluid and varied and evolving, but the underlying substratum, right, is the power dynamic. And what goes on constantly is shifting alignments of power forces, right? So, That's a kind of a, a quasi-metaphysics, right? That's, uh, that's possible there. But you're right. Then you, uh, you, uh, you juxtapose someone like Professor Peterson with uh, Professor Russell right, on the reaction right, to the, the abandonment of uh, universal necessities. And uh, it, it is true that one side sees that as a kind of liberation uh, if you take the idea of universal necessities, as some modern thinkers do, and see that as limiting our individuality, as limiting our freedom. Uh, the idea is, well, if there are universal truths and human beings should be subject to all of these universal truths, and I am the one who knows what those universal truths are, 
that could be taken in the direction of some authoritarian political right, uh, yes. outcomes. So it will then be seen as a, a freeing move philosophically to say, well, there is no universal truth. Nobody has a lock on the way reality really works. So no one should have power over anyone else. And perhaps I've not read uh, Professor uh, Russell's work directly. Uh, perhaps that's the, the direction that he wants to go uh, with, uh, with that. And the other side then is to say, uh, uh, we don't necessarily mean by universal necessities, right, uh, uh, any sort of political right authoritarianism, but that we are living within a reality and that we do have a human nature. Uh, human beings have certain nutritional needs because of our biological const uh, constitution. Uh, we have certain psychological needs, uh, perhaps you know, a curiosity for psychological uh, 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 um, uh, comforts and, and securities under certain uh, certain circumstances, the need for love and affection and challenges sure. and so on. And those are a universal right, birthright, but all of those uh, need to, uh, whatever it is that we do, right, freely, right, and autonomously in, in finding ourselves individually has to be within a certain framework that is in fact imposed upon us by, uh, by reality. Um, so, uh, the next step then would be to have uh, members of those two camp uh, agree initially on what they take those universal necessities to be. Yes. I mean, it's like um, in regard of gender questions, I mean, the, the, question, the, the thing in question was gender polarities, are they like universal sure. things? Uh, um, did they drive us to be at that point in time now? After evolution, or are they completely social constructs? You know, those, sure. So these are the both ways of dealing with that, and, and I'm only, sure. always questioning how, um, because gender questions we just in, um, are everywhere now, and I'm, I'm just wondering how yeah. to approach that. They're always heated. You can't really argue with a social justice warrior about one side. Yeah. It's, it's, completely messed up the situation, in my estimation. Right. So there, the, the divide uh, primarily is epistemological, uh, political, right? a, a hybrid position there. So then you have to you know, ask the person right, you're, you're discussing with, do you think that this is fundamentally an empirical question? Right? That what we will need to do is uh, set aside what we might like to be the truth, Right, about uh, gender identity and its relationship to sexuality and, and biology, and turn things over to the biologists and the psychobiologists. And what they will do is, uh, is uh, come up with the best theories about the degree to which things are fixed by biology and the degree to which things are, are fluid as a result of our individual experiences and uh, social situating. If the person says yes, then we plunge into the theories and we uh, we see what the biologists and the psychologists come up with. But of course, as you suggest, uh, in many cases, uh, people are locked into already a, uh, a what we would call broadly a postmodern worldview that excludes uh, there being an objective biological or objective biopsychological answer to that question. They have a normative commitment already, and it's just part of a rhetorical strategy for them to try to exclude any attempt to make it an empirical question at all. So yes. you can't have a debate with them. Yes. No, because they, they're following the, the paradigm of Lyotard that you can't know everything, anything about the objective world by science. Yes. So they, they try to, as far as I understand what's happening in the United States, they, they start to question the val uh, validity of science itself. Yes. So what is going on with the postmodernists is the same thing that's going on with the, uh, the older generation religious thinkers. Right? When there was a conflict between a religious worldview that was very passionately felt, uh, gave people a sense of identity, Uh, and uh, they then felt a social mission to convert the world to their way of thinking. But when it started to run into problems with uh, the scientific right, worldview on any number of issues, their reaction philosophically and politically was to try to shut down the scientific debate to make that illegitimate. 
So the exact same psychology, right, is now in play with this uh, second and third generation of postmodernism. They have their ideological worldview, uh, science, uh, to the extent that it conflicts with that worldview. They will then, as you suggest, then question fundamentally the, uh, the legitimacy of the scientific project and try to shut it down. Can you just elaborate on those different phases of uh, generations of postmodernism? Just sure, sure. Well, the first generation of postmodernists. Uh, so these would be the uh, the, the, the truly well-educated uh, intellectuals of the 1950s, 1960s, early 70s. Foucault, Rorty, right, Lyotard, right, and the others. And uh, what they were largely doing was developing very powerful arguments. And they were arguments, right, uh, to show that the, ob uh, the arguments on behalf of objectivity right, in all of its manifestations failed. Right? Uh, and what you're then left with is, a, by and large, a purely negative right, result. Right? There is no possibility of, of, uh, of achieving objectivity uh, and universality right, with respect to, to reality. What do you then uh, make of that? Uh, then over the course of the 70s and 80s and on into the 90s, um, as the first generation uh, uh, kind of clones themselves intellectually, another generation of uh, uh, professors right, comes along who have been trained in first generation postmodern thought. And the argument then is to say, well, uh, if all of our stories are just narratives and none of them has any better uh, understanding of objectivity than the other, what we should be doing is uh, giving equal hearing to all of the narratives, all of the worldviews. So uh, what you find then is the argument that, say, uh, women writers have been underrepresented in the literature for centuries. And what we need to do if uh, women are 50%, say, of the population, is uh, make room for about 50% of the curriculum to be, to be uh, women writers, or whatever the, the appropriate uh, proportion of uh, 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 people's sexuality preferences or their uh, ethnic identities and so forth. So you have a, a kind of a, an equal proportional representation Uh, is the goal, because none of them is any truer than the other, but they are all legitimate expressions of people's group identities, and we shouldn't uh, uh, privilege one any more right, than the other. So that turns sure. into a, a, a quasi-positive uh, egalitarian right, movement. And now we are 20 years later from the 90s and so forth, Uh, the result of that then is to say, after 20 years, uh, students then have been more exposed to works that fit their own uh, postmodernly conceived group identity. So you will have women uh, who have read women authors, right, predominantly, and you'll have uh, you know ethnically Hispanic uh, students who have read only Hispanic right authors, right, and so forth. And they come to be less aware of and less educated in other groups' traditions. And so they are uh, in what we used to call a balkanized right, situation, where each has its own yes. group. They're reading only things right, within their own group. They do not have an understanding, right, really, of the other group's worldview. And their own worldview, uh, as taught to them by postmodernism, is to say, you can't really even understand another group's worldview because your entire way of thinking is shaped by your group and theirs. So there's no possibility of fruitful discourse right, or conversation across these group boundaries. But at the same time, your group's identity is core to who you are and uh, your being who you are is an important quest right, in your life. So the only way for you to realize your identity and to assert your identity absent civil discourse with an attempt to understand the other group is going to be through uh, kind of non-rational and even then physicalistic means. Mm. So then we see groups not understanding each other, not even trying to understand each other, 
but uh, being willing to use kind of any tactics, including uh, violence tactics, to to uh, to achieve their group's ends. And that's yeah, our third generation. Yes, this is. Um, I, I think I get it now. This is the the reason for this whole debate about cultural appropriation, where it's forbidden. Well, the whole discussion where it's like, yes. okay, stay inside your group, don't imitate uh, the values of the yeah. fashion of the other group because you have to stay in your assigned group in a way. Yes, exactly. And they have to stay in their assigned group, right? So you have a, a kind of collectivized property rights. You know, you know, many of these thinkers come out of the left And so it's a little odd to speak of property rights, uh, given their traditional hostility to trap property rights. But they do have a kind of cultural property rights notion. This is ours. This is our identity. So uh, uh, the way that we define ourselves, uh, as deconstruction taught us, is in terms of difference. Right. Uh, so if you are trying to appropriate, you're taking away the difference. Therefore, you're taking away my identity. Mm. But my identity as a member of a group is fundamental to me. So you're going to, to be against that. The historical uh, parallels are strong here because uh, in my book, right, which you mentioned, the early counter enlightenment thinkers, uh, individuals like Haman and uh, Herder, Herder especially, You see this in the the, uh, the rise of nationalism in the the early 1800s against the more enlightenment cosmopolitanism and internationalism, uh, especially among the German thinkers, right? Like Herder was to say, you know, his big question was how had Napoleon, right, one of those damned Frenchmen, right, uh, come into Germany and beaten us, right, so easily. And uh, part of his answer was to say, well, we Germans had too much tried to imitate the French. We had tried to imitate the English. And so what we need to do is kind of put mm -hmm. up cultural boundaries right against those French imports, against those damned English imports, be authentically German. And on his view, uh, Germans are not especially a rational species, <laughs> uh, rather bizarre given their amazing scientific and philosophical prowess, but this was Haman's position, that they, uh, they need rather more uh, ethnically to identify themselves with their group and resist any, any foreign incursions. Yes. So in a way, uh, this third generation of postmodernism is uh, the great-great-grandchildren of Haman, oh, uh, okay. as I sometimes think of it. Let us just um, stay there for a moment and talk about um, postmodern strategy because, I mean, you, you wrote your book, I guess, seven or ten years ago? Longer now. Uh, longer now. Yes. yes I, I wrote it in uh, 2000 and uh, had some challenges getting it published, uh, but it was published in 2004. So but the interesting now thing years. is now, now reading, I think, uh, on chapter six, you read that now. And it's like a perfect description of what is happening when, when I, when, especially if, I, if I'm looking at those third generation postmodernists and I see, okay, they, they stand up for values like tolerance, uh, empathy, subjectivity, uh, political correctness and stuff like that. But they do it in a kind of, I would say, aggressive or, or um, authoritarianism way of doing things. Yeah. So it's yeah. like, and, and um, to quote Nietzsche, it's like um, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm engaging a person like that, they are acting as if they were at the same point actors or agitators. Yes. You know, they, they, they're not really self-transgender, but they, they're fighting for that, but they're doing it in this very aggressive way. So this sure. duality of, of um, aggressiveness and plurality, um, empathy and all those stuff, it strikes me very odd. You know what yes. I mean? It's like, That's right. How do you... Well, there is a, you know, to put it in philosophical language, there always is a performative contradiction, right, in relativism, right? At least it's the epistemological relativism. Because uh, it is denying, right, that there is kind of any universal truth or any objectivity But at the same time, right, one is announcing that relativistic principle as a universal objective principle. Right? So you're saying, you know, the, the, the universal truth is that there are no universal truths, right? 
or the, the objective fact is that everything is subjective. And how you, you know, postmodernists, the smart ones are aware right, of the, the tension in, in trying to, to formulate this. But uh, in my view, there is no way to get around it. So you will, yeah, in action, end up with the kinds of performative contradictions right, that, you're, that you're talking about. So uh, you will end up, you know, if you talk about the, the gender right issues, the, uh, you know, everyone uh, by now is opposed to traditional sexism. And the view is that, you know, sexism really is wrong, right? It, 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 it's an objective moral sin, right, so to speak, to be sexist, right? But then at the same time, uh, uh, the implication then is that one should then be uh, at least tolerant, right, uh, and get past right sexist attitudes. Uh, but then that tolerance, right, uh, gets quickly dropped, right, in the social justice right form or the postmodern form, right, in favor of a kind of authoritarianism of their views with respect to sexuality. Right? So we go from saying we need to respect individuals' quest to find their own sexuality to you must conform to my understanding of what sexual attitudes should be. Right? So you this go from the power a, a, aspect. The power aspect. Yes, that's mm -hmm. right. So the, the, uh, the power play is very close to the surface. Yeah. So it's the same with uh, patriarchy. Uh, you mentioned that in your book that you should honor and value all cultures, but the Western patriarchy yes. is um, bad in all yeah. its forms, which is kind of weird because it's, it's such a one-sided view of the patriarchy. I mean, it's like we're living in this society because patriarchy in all of its good forms has created our society, and, and it's, it's a two-edged side. Uh, right. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> well, I would back away from saying that uh, patriarchy if you take that uh, is responsible for what we've uh, what we have accomplished, I think it's true to say that by and large, uh, much of the work of creating modern civilization was the work of men because they had the the freedom and the resources right to do so. But it wasn't in terms of a any sort of philosophical principle that said men should be ruling things, and that is what enabled right those accomplishments. Uh, yes, but yes, uh, you, you can't say right at the at the one time that. Uh, uh, patriarchy is evil, right? Really evil. If at the same time you're saying there are no objective moral principles, right? You can't say that uh, you know it's wrong that the poor and the 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 underprivileged, right, don't have access to technology, uh, and then in other breaths say technology is by its very nature. Uh, a, a, a white male phallocentric imperialist imposition on the world. Right? That does not mesh. Okay? But then what we want to say is, uh, you know, from our perspective, that's a performative contradiction, and that's going to take us back to the epistemological issues right, themselves. So what do we think about contradictions? Uh, is that a problem? And contradictions are a problem, right? But only if you think that logic matters. Right. And that is to say, only if you think being rational matters, and that's only if you think that the world has an identity, that it goes according to cause and effect, and therefore our understanding of the world has to match the way the world goes without contradiction. Once you have abandoned right, the idea of any connection to objective reality, that everything is subjective, then it becomes an open question, well, why not? allow contradictions in our thinking, if language really only is a social construct, that it's only a tool that we use in our power struggles, well, if contradictory rhetorical strategies get us what we want, why not? Mm. Right? And there's a point in uh, Foucault's history of sexuality, right, where he makes a, a very similar point. The language is slightly different, but there he's talking about discourses and uh, Uh, and rhetorical strategies of discourses. And he says, you know, when you start to think bigger picture, there's no real problem with having contradictory sub-discourses right, within your overall rhetorical strategy. Um, so the analogy I sometimes think in terms of is, uh, if you think about the, the, the legal world, a courtroom as a kind of reality, 
but uh, lawyers and judges approach and uh, the courtroom with uh, different philosophical commitments, right? One sees it as an arena in which we are genuinely concerned with justice and that that means something. And we are going to do our best to assess all of the evidence. And we'll just look at the different narratives that the two sides will present, but we will examine them vigorously for internal contradictions and which ones fit with the physical fact, because we can get the truth, right? Uh, and it's exactly. important that we try to do that. Uh, but to come back to the, the courtroom analogy, we do know explicitly there are other lawyers, right, who enter the courtroom and for them, truth, justice, right, is not what it is. The, the courtroom is only, right, a, a place where there are power relations and uh, the goal is to achieve your side's interests, right, no matter what. Yep. And any rhetorical strategy is, uh, is legitimate because, you know, uh, to hell with truth, uh, to hell with justice. It's, we don't believe in those anymore. So, uh, yeah, so you have exactly that same modern versus postmodern dynamic played out there. Yes. Um, one, one, one last question. Um, you mentioned uh, modernity and, and the reaction which led to, to postmodernity and, and there are some discussions when that exactly took place. I, I'm thinking about, that there was this discussion about Prud'Igo, the housing project, when that all fell down in the 60s, I think, and that was the end of modernity and the start of postmodernity. Mm -hmm. So now, and um, now, now we are in these weird situations where we have clearly some benefits and advantages by, by the development of post postmodernism, but also all these problems and pathologies in a way. So now, so I'm asking myself, where, how, how do we get past that point? Uh, where, where does that lead us? I mean, there, I know there are some. Um, developments in uh, literature and philosophy which go beyond postmodernism. I'm thinking post-postmodernism, uh, metamodernism, performance, all those things who try to yeah. get over the, the pathologies of postmodernism. So, and, and I just wanted to ask you for your take on that. Where, where do we go? Yeah. How do we um, grow and develop from that point right. onward? Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm torn right on that question. I try to do my own uh, crystal ball gazing into the future and uh, and predictions. Uh, the optimistic side of me wants to say that postmodernism is a skeptical right movement, and ultimately it's a nihilistic right movement. So when you talk about the social justice warriors, uh, and we see in the news, some of their manifestations, it really is uh, thugs, right? Or anti-intellectual people who are you know, literally, in some cases, walking around university campuses with sticks and bats, and they just want, right, to fight. Uh, they don't have arguments, right? They are, I think by the third generation, they're not well educated. You could say of the first generation, the second generation postmodernists, they were well educated. They knew the, their opposition. They knew the arguments. Uh, they had to be in order to earn a legitimate place in the universities. But because of the anti-intellectual nature, right, of the movement, you expect that their children and grandchildren intellectually will be, will, will be less educated. So, you know, ultimately, once you say, you know, there is no truth, there are no uh, legitimate values, there's nothing worth talking about, then uh, people stop talking. And that becomes boring, it becomes uninteresting. And if the only thing you can do is, uh, is mount a demonstration and try to beat up your opponents, uh, that's a confession of bankruptcy. The uh, smart people who are coming up in the younger generation will say, that is not very interesting to me. I want to do something significant in my life. So they look around, where are the interesting questions in law, in science, in, uh, in philosophy? And they pick themselves up and start to go and, and do something, right? Or if they are artists, they say, you know, I don't just want to do some other, you know, disgusting, perverted thing, right? I want to do something genuine, right, mm. as an artist. And so I, they will go off in a different, in a different direction. So the optimistic side of me says that this uh, could and should burn out right after after this generation. 
Also, to the extent that things become physicalistic, well, you know, young social justice warriors, you're not going to believe, beat the police. You're not going to beat the, the SWAT teams. You're not going to beat the, uh, the National Guard if they get, they get mm. caught up, right? Uh, if it becomes a, a physical battle in the street, they will lose, right? Uh, the same way, going back to the 1960s, when there was a huge amount of uh, you know, left-wing physical demonstration, and in many cases, uh, terrorist movements, uh, you know, Bader Meinhof and others, uh, they lost, right? And they were driven underground. So if you know, it gets to that point, I think that history will, uh, will play itself out again. Uh, the more pessimistic side of me, though, says, that uh, universities are a special place and uh, because most smart people, not all, there are lots of uh, smart people who don't need university, they just go on right with their careers and so on, but most smart people do go to university and what they learn in those four to six or eight years, depending on how much time they spend in university, is formative. You know, they're all intelligent people, passionate in many respects, well-read, but they uh, they pick up the prevailing right, ideologies. And so uh, if you, so to speak, have a captive audience of a whole generation exposed to a narrow worldview that is nihilistic and destructive, then we are going to breed a whole generation of people who are not able intellectually to maintain the institutions of civilization. Right? You know, if they are, they, they if they learn that everything uh, is is up for grabs, that there is no truth, anything goes, and just impose your will. Well, when they assume power, then they will uh, destroy right, the institutions or weaken them, weaken them uh, severely. They will not do the work to uh, to maintain the underpinnings right of uh, of uh, of our institutions, uh, and that does not. Right, bode well for for the future. So, uh, to go back to the optimistic side, I do also think technology is is going to be formative. So, perhaps to the extent that universities do not reform themselves internally, it really is primarily humanities departments and uh, closely related yes. social science studies departments, so-called ghettos in which many of them have become. Uh, but if they succeed in infecting the entire university, we do have a problem. I but with, uh, with new technologies, we do have the capacity easily to build alternative platforms. So perhaps universities will just be bypassed and people will get their philosophies elsewhere. Yes. I mean, I think this is the idea of Jonathan Haidt to, to separate the justice, the humanities, the universities who are promoting humanities and the, the, the universities who are like for the hard sciences, you know, to, to sure, yeah. So. No, but I mean, large universities already are that way, right? Mm. The people who are doing good work in engineering, the physical yeah. sciences, and so on, you know, they're just ignoring what goes on in the humanities. But of course, that leaves the the field open to the social justice warriors to to to, to have their way with the university. No, but yes, but, but last thing, um, I, I meant specifically the, the, the philosophies of, um, okay, what, what is happening after postmodernity, you know, do, do you have it, not, not just a political argument about that or like a social argument, but like a philosophical argument, can you, have you do you have a vision of, of like, yes, no, I think after postmodernity? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a good question, and, and that was in your original question, I got sidetracked on that. I, at the same time, I'm I'm uh, I, I'm optimistic there also philosophically, right, ultimately, because uh, all of the arguments that the postmodernists used did come out of philosophy. So Richard Rorty, uh, Michel Foucault, uh, Jacques Derrida, Lyotard—they all had degrees in in philosophy, uh, and so that is why right they had the power that they did because they uh, the arguments were first rate, and uh, and principled and uh, and deep. Uh, but what has happened since then is that the philosophy right, within the humanities has by and large moved past postmodernism. There are lots of postmodern philosophers out there, but uh, philosophers as a breed tend to like really good arguments. And so they might play around with, uh, for some years, the idea that uh, we need to be skeptical and so on. 
But at a, some point, right, somebody comes along and says, hey, I've got this new hypothesis or this new positive paradigm, right, and so on. And everybody gets excited about that and they go and they work on that. So philosophy was very skeptical in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But since then, essentially this has been uh, my career, uh, philosophers have become increasingly realistic right, uh, in their approach. So many philosophers are now working with uh, cognitive scientists. So they're working with psychologists, they're working with neuros, uh, neuroscientists, right, and so forth, uh, to try to figure out how the human mind, right, actually works. Or many of them have moved past their skepticism about normative principles and become uh, small-o objectivist, right, or realist, right, of various forms, and uh, trying to work out how perhaps in an evolutionary psychology way or an evolutionary biology way, there is uh, something uh, universal and objective about morality. Uh, there's been a, a huge increase in uh, interest in uh, applied ethics. Philosophers doing good work in medical ethics and business ethics and engineering ethics. And the assumption is that these are real problems and it's important that we get you know, uh, real answers to them to, to solve these problems. And even uh, history of philosophy has boomed uh, you know, huge interest in Aristotle and, and, and Locke and Hegel and Nietzsche and the others. But the entire history of philosophy, or almost the entire history of philosophy, as philosophers do it, proceeds on realist grounds, right? That there really is a text, that the text means what it means, and it's important that we understand the philosopher accurately yes. uh, in his or her own terms. So. Philosophy has its pockets of uh, irrationality, but by and large, it's it's healthy. But it's, is, it a, um, is, it, is it a step back to, to a modernistic thinking, you think, like realistic thinking, or is it like, does it integrate the, the text analysis from postmodernism as well? Is it like, is it a step backward or is it a step forward? What, what is your I, take on that? Yeah, I uh, see it more as a step forward, but not a step forward that uh, that integrates with postmodernism. And one thing you can say that is good that came out of postmodernism is, since the postmodernists were very, uh, many of them came out of uh, uh, epistemology focused on language studies, that you did have some very sophisticated, albeit skeptical arguments about language. And what that forced the more pro-realist thinkers to do was develop more sophisticated, realistic understandings of language, right? So that uh, dialectic, right, uh, has been has been healthy. And to say, okay, fine, we have this understanding of how language and concepts work. That doesn't work. The postmodern critique, criticism of it is fine. But now we come up with a, a better one. And maybe we came up with better ones more quickly than we otherwise would have. So I see we're making, uh, making progress. Mm. Yeah, one, one interesting approach, I think, is uh, the, the um, Timothy's uh, Vermeulen metamodernism, which is like a very optimistic approach, who goes forward and says, well, we can um, ethically use all those approaches of those previous philosophies and those previous worldviews and try to apply that in, that in an ethical way so we don't have to reject postmodernism or um, realism altogether, but take those things mm. which are useful in specific contexts. And I, okay. I, I like that idea because it's like optimistic. It's not um, so. This I've heard the phrase, but I'm not familiar with mm. the, that, that project in particular. Mm. Well, Professor Hicks. Yes, I good. Uh, we, did yeah, it? we should wrap things up as, yes. Uh, yes, good. All right, well, thanks for having me on. Very good range of questions. Always yes. a pleasure about these ideas. Yeah, I think so too. Thank you very much for doing this. I